Did you know that many students in the same classroom, in the same school, perceive their schooling experiences differently? Welcome to our listeners in the North, South, East, and West. We are Educa K-16 podcast, bringing distinguished guests in education. We are a call to action to raise awareness about education in our nation. Calling for what my distinguished co-host, Dr. Noboa, calls a renaissance in our school system. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Pinkos, whose professional journey started back in 1984 as an elementary school teacher. And her trajectory includes service as a school principal and district level executive. We ask you listeners to please listen with love and stay in the now with Educa K-16. Shout outs to Jose Carlos from Vottles, our post-production. We couldn't do it without him. And to DTO Music for our jingle, Arterezon for our branding. I quote my co-host, Dr. Novoa, knowledge through language is what facilitates the integration of multiple modes of understanding, as well as guide the navigation of countless cognitive connections in the interface of learning, language, and culture. Any disruption to the process is bound to limit the full potential of the learner. Welcome, Dr. Novoa. Welcome to my co-host. How are you today? Thank you. Good to be back. Uh, and let me add to your introduction, uh, Dr. Margarita Pincos, uh, recently retired just earlier this very year. 2021, uh, as a high-level administrator in the West Palm Beach uh, of the school system, and is now president of an association called NABE, which represents the National Association for Bilingual Education. For those of you that have been following our podcast, we have used that acronym before, but we cannot take it for granted. And so we are ready to interview her uh, as a special guest, and it's an honor uh, to have her here. So let me turn it back to Sandra. Uh, and uh, I want to say a little bit more about you, Dr. Novoa, if it's okay. I want our new listeners to know that you are the author of the two most recent books in the nation about Latinos in education in American history and the critical issues we face in the 21st century. So, Dr. Novoa, our audience is eager to get started with this interview. Thank you. Let's go for it. Let's ask uh, Dr. Pincos some questions. Let me uh, say hi to Dr. Pincos. Welcome. Hi. Uh, She is now taping from Florida. I happen to be in San Juan right now, and Sandra happens to be in Washington, D.C., and that's what makes this synergy more exciting. Bueno, para empezar, to begin with, uh, Margarita, simple but maybe not so simple question to begin, and that is understanding the concept of bilingual education. We hear English as a second language. We hear something called transitional bilingual education. We hear dual language, two-way, and we hear immersion. 
And it's confusing for the lay audience to understand all of this under one term called bilingual education. And sometimes we hear the term bilingual bicultural education. So can you help us understand uh, and kind of dissect what is meant by the concept of bilingual education? Well, it is not a simple question. Uh, it, is, it has lots of layers because I, I, I think that uh, people like to put educational systems in, in silos and in, and in, and in uniform uh, pieces. And uh, the, the mind of people learning is not uniform and it's not, uh, and it's not isolated. So, uh, so there's lots of layers to that. So I'm just going to say overall, because another term that you didn't mention was the uh, LEP or ELL or else, and, and, uh, uh, and that has been um, uh, difficult to be able to define these children. So I'll start with the children, because usually it's a safe place to start. Um, in this country, we unfortunately, and I think in every country, perhaps, um, we like to define people by the way, what, by what they cannot do instead of what they can do and their assets. And I think sometimes when we talk about asset-based instruction, we forget that it's not just to call something. Asset-based instruction, if you don't do the actions and the practices that go with that. And part of that actions is these children have a level of proficiency in another language and uh, at some level. Some of them are highly educated. Some of them are just beginning their education in their native language, but they are I, I think that um, a good friend of mine, Bernardo Garcia, in the state um, here in Florida, used to say that the only thing that an accent means is that so that, that person is able to uh, to master another language at least as good as as, as, the, as English. Um, so, so the so the first one is we call it to me. I, I never get too involved in the issue of uh, of, of labels for kids. They're in English language proficiency has been really passed because people feel that it is the focus on on their on, on what they cannot do. Um, English learners have some problems too, but at the end of the day, these are children that come to this country. They're not proficient completely in the English language, but they are proficient in theirs, and uh, and they need to be educated with the understanding that the language of instruction is not a language that they master, and that's the key. What is the language of instruction? How do we acquire knowledge? We acquire knowledge through language. And if we, um, if we don't understand the language that the teacher and the student, they don't speak a common language, that, that you have to do certain things differently in order to meet their, their civil right of getting an education. So for many years, educators have come up with different models. I, I think that you mentioned some of your research, some of the original models. Um, that goes back to, to German, and, uh, and even sometimes people say that uh, that uh, even the founding fathers were not sure that English would be the, the language of the country. There were other languages that were thrown in, including Hebrew. So, um, so this is not new. But at that time, there was a different focus. I think that the current bilingual focus started in Miami when the the, the masses of Cubans came in. And people, most of these Cubans were educated, and they uh, they wanted their children to be educated in both languages. Um, so, so that comes back to the term, to the question of what does it mean by the education? So, the 
term bilingual education explains any instruction that is done in a meaningful way, in a, in a purposeful way, using one or more languages. Well, bilingual would be two languages if you know bilingual. So, but it has to be, it's not that you're teaching the class and then suddenly you translate a word or something, or that you put the student aside. It is using the both languages in a meaningful way and in a purposeful way. Uh, so that is the big umbrella. So under, under bilingual education, you have programs like dual language. Dual language is a program um, that, that, is, that contains either one-way immersion or two-way immersion. And there is a period of time of the day that is spent um, learning content in the, in, in the native language and learning content in English. And uh, um, there's different models, different amounts of time that, that you can do that. And what differentiates uh, one-way immersion to two-way immersion is that in two-way immersion, you have native, native English speakers in the classroom at the same time. So they're both learning together language, so they're both exchanging uh, and, and exploring a new language. It doesn't, it's very important that, that the power base is kept at the same level between those two students, um, those two groups of students. Uh, One-way immersion is just that English language learners learn uh, at a certain portion of the day in their native language and another portion of the day in English. Um, and then the um, ESL, or English for Speakers of Other Languages, that's a program that would not fall into the bilingual education umbrella because the goal of that program is English proficiency exclusively. No, no, no question and no, no, no regards to the maintaining or keeping the native language. So, um, so those programs, they may, they may use uh, in, a, in an assistive way uh, um, the native language, if it happens to be that the teacher or the educator speaks it, but at the end of the day, it is based on um, on just the goal is English English proficiency and exclusively. I hope that clarifies it. Adina, are you satisfied with uh, Dr. Pincos's response? I think I am. She she was very detailed and and to the point. I remember uh, Dr. Samuel Betances at one time, in fact, in a speech to the NABE conference several years ago, talked about bilingual education as understandable instruction. And if instruction is not understandable, regardless of language, then it's defeat. Uh, so one of the things about bilingual education is that it's a way to transform uh, literacy in a way that students do well as they understand what is being said and communicated. And so uh, I, I think she covered the waterfront very, very well. <laughs> if you just tuned in, oh, go ahead, Margarita. Something that I didn't get into was culture, bicultural. Uh, because obviously language is the most important part of the culture and, uh, and the way that and it cannot be taught without uh, it, it, you know, an articulation between culture and language. But at the same time, we should be aiming for multicultural education, which uh, this country is not a, a uniculture country. This country is the, um, the result of multiple cultures blending together, and that's what makes it so beautiful. So I think that, yes, of course, as it applies to language, we, we facilitate and we explore and we celebrate the language and the culture of the students that come in. But 
but it's important to realize that, first of all, the things that come in don't have a monoculture. Um, they come from different different cultures within their own country. And so the idea of celebrating all cultures and learning how to learn from each other is very important. So I'm sorry, I forgot that part. And, and, one of the, and, and it's interesting you say that, Margarita, because if you take away language, you hamper culture. And culture is transmitted best through language. And the best language is the native language. And so as we maximize biculturalism uh, or multiculturalism, we enhance the language experience as well as the learning experience. If you're just tuning in, we are Educa K-16 podcast, and we are talking about bilingual education. And Dr. Pinkos has just informed us that any instruction done in a purposeful way, using two language, two languages in a meaningful way, falls under that big umbrella of bilingual education. Dr. Pinkos, for our audience, can you please expand on the role of the National Association of uh, Bilingual Education in bilingual education? in the United States right now? Well, NAVA is an organization that has been around for 50 years. And, and if we look back at what the country looked like 50 years ago, um, it really leaves us uh, with a lot of, of um, gratefulness to those people that originated and realized that there was a need and a vacuum in the country. Um, that is the, the good part of the celebration. Unfortunately, um, the, the bad part is that we still are in an area of a vacuum we still have a very hard time understanding um, the concepts of bilingual education. And, um, and, and again, it's not the, the case. There was a time um, in this country that bilingual education came back. But it came back without a rigor, without a purpose, without any, just, just to put in language. And, and, and it cannot be like that. Education is a rigorous business, as we all know, and it has to be uh, focus and, and everything that we do has a purpose, has to have a purpose, an instructional purpose. Um, and NAVE offers that um, that wealth of information. Most of NAVE's attendees, uh, we have an annual conference, and by the way, it's going to be in New York mid-February uh, uh, next year. And um, and we bring together teachers and educators that are on the, on the forefront of education. We bring together um, professors at the university, we bring together community members, even students, and uh, so uh, and parents. So this is a this is a, a, a microcosm of, uh, of of people that are interested in bilingual education, exchanging ideas, and checking each other out, and, and understanding best practices. Um, so NAVE offers that service, which I think is very powerful. The other service is that NAVE is at the forefront at the national level, uh, working with the Department of Education in multiple administrations, as you can imagine, in 15 years. Uh, we have been able to adapt uh, to different goals and different objectives of, of, of the national administration, and we have been able to continue to, focus, to help them understand and focus uh, on bilingualism as a, as a strength and as an asset as they develop policies and as they develop um, uh, strategy. So, um, uh, so again, that uh, I think that that kind of covers the, we also have publications, mm -hmm. 
And we have two publications that people can look at, and, uh, and we have documents um, that that, uh, that explore the different aspects of education. Let me piggyback on, 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 on what you said, Margarita, in terms of giving the audience an idea of how big is bilingual education in this country. Are we talking about a handful of schools? Are we talking about uh, small populations of students? How big, how vast is bilingual education in the USA today? Well, fortunately, not, not as vast as it should be, uh, but, um, but it is... Uh, there is a new renaissance with this, uh, of, of districts that want to, um, because they see the results, and they see, uh, and many of the of, of, of parents um, see the, the, that their students are, that their children are learning different languages and things like that. The backlash to that is um, that we have to be very alert, because as that has become uh, a, a desirous program for middle-class parents, um, there has been a tendency for people, uh, educators or, or policymakers, to exclude English language learners from the uh, equation. And, uh, and first of all, um, bilingual education is the best program if it's done correctly for English language learners. This is, I mean, and that I think that anybody can can understand that. It also it's also good for the other kids, and it's good to have both kids together. Uh, it makes a stronger program when you have the English language learners because you have the models of language there and vice versa. But there has been, um, we have to be very, and it's not common, but I think that it's um, because a lot of educators that are advocates uh, have um, have stood strong uh, guarding those rails, but, uh, but there is that tendency. But I would say um, that uh, there are some districts that are, um, like Miami-Dade, it's, it's a mandate every um, one of the, the policies of the district is um, English plus uh, native language plus two. Um, so many, many uh, districts have um, been two other languages. Uh, and some of the other districts have um, a limited uh, program. Uh, so I, I, I also, I'm also careful um, not to bunch all of these bilingual programs in one, uh, because as much as I believe that any bilingual um, Bilingualism included in the classroom is good for everybody. I think that um, that there is a lot of programs that are not very strong out there, and um, and we have to make sure that the, the basis of bilingual education are well understood and things are done with the purpose. So, so if you're just tuning in, we're talking about. There are some students that are in the same classroom. They're English language learners. They might be in a monolingual setting and they're not understanding or gathering the content that is being taught. So we're talking about a different model that gives hope and that teaches all students to either learn a new language, either English, it, it, English is the base uh, language of instruction, like Dr. Pinkos mentioned, plus another language. It could be Spanish, which is the most common in our country, French, Arabic, any, Chinese, Mandarin. There are many, many uh, bilingual programs sprouting in our nation as a symbol of hope. 
If you just tuned in, we are Educa K-16 Podcast, and we're here talking with our bilingual education national expert, Dr. Margarita Pincos. Take it away, Dr. Noah. Well, one of the other areas, and this may sound somewhat political or historical or both, is we're puzzled by the fact that even the early pioneers and pilgrims uh, in this country spoke another language other than English. And at one point in the 1700s, as early as the 1700s, actually as early as the late 1600s, and throughout up until the Revolutionary War, there was a lot of debate about language. And there were even German schools in the 1800s and so forth, and that became a major force in this country. So bilingual education has been with us for a long time. We've just not really understood or known about some of that history. But what is puzzling and what becomes political is, why on earth is it taking so long for us to embrace, understand, uh, and maximize on multiple languages and not fight another language other than English. Uh, when two is better than one and three is better than two. Um, so what is it that we should know about that history? Why the resistance? Why the opposition? Why has it become so hard? Margarita, can you give us a little bit of a hint uh, or perspective on what's going on or not going on or what should be going on in this country where it's become a debate rather than an embrace. Yeah, it's, it's a very complex and multi-layered problem. In those years that you talked about at the beginning of this nation, uh, an educated person spoke another language. That was, that was part, that was the definition of a cultured person, of an educated person. Um, and that, at some point, um, that uh, has not necessarily been lost, um, but uh, this country became, of all countries in the world, it shouldn't have been, but it became a monolingual country. And, uh, and it's very hard to, even for kids that are bilingual, are multilingual to practice the languages because it's not something that is part of the of the nature of, of the country and it's, it doesn't even help when you travel because it used to be a time in which those those uh, early Americans traveled and they had to be fluent in that language and they're academically fluent in those languages. Nowadays, I mean, I'm a student of languages. I'm always learning. I'm always learning German, Italian, French, whatever comes my way. And I go and I struggle with the language. And whoever it is in another country that I'm speaking to speaks in a beautiful English and, uh, and, and cuts me off, and, uh, and which, you know, with very good intent. But, um, but it's, it's very easy. So, so many, many homes in America say, well, we don't need to speak another language because everybody speaks English. And, and that, unfortunately, is, is, is true, but at the same time, they don't realize that those people have the advantages of two languages, of using their brain in a bigger way, of understanding concepts in a bigger way. So um, uh, the other part is that, that we miss out on is when we're having relationships, global relationships, 
uh, on business relationships. Just speaking a few words and getting the, or getting a translator doesn't cut it. You have to really be able to understand in order to understand uh, market market uh, um, opportunities. You have to really understand the culture and the language of those conversations. So, so we are uh, to our detriment. We uh, we constantly handicap our children. And the, the, the funny part is that we we take so much effort in removing the language that those kids came with, particularly languages that are, uh, and I would say that every language is critical to the security of this nation. And we take pains in making sure that they don't keep it. And then once they get to high school, we teach the language as a foreign language for the Department of Defense or the Department of State has to spend a ton of money in, in teaching those people when we all know that language learning is not easy, particularly as you become adult and if it's not done in content. So, um, so of course, there is a whole area of ecocentrism. And uh, as a principal, I, I would have people come to me and say, uh, you're just doing this because I ha I started a bilingual program in a rural area and um, and in that rural area there were the, the community was very divided by ethnicity and they're divided by socioeconomic and many people came to me and they would say you're just doing this to help your people and many times I felt I wish that I was anything but Hispanic you know but um but I would say to them oh no and this is not to help my people the the kids that are Hispanic they already speak two languages. Is this to help your child that only speaks one? Um, so that usually sometimes helps, but um, but it's um, it's it's it has to be this idea, and we all say language is an asset. We language. How many times do you hear it? How many? I mean, now you go to visit any administrator that I know of, any administrator, including me. Did you go to visit and there? Well, I didn't have my degrees because I've always I never liked that. But uh, but most educators have some kind of their experience in their office, some kind of their degrees or their awards or all that. You never see a sign in a, in an office that says I am bilingual. I speak two languages, um, and and people don't celebrate that. So so again, it, it, and and I have to say politically. Sometimes uh, it's more accepted to, or to uh, speak some of the European languages than some of the native languages. And, and, and that is um, uh, part of the ethnocentrism of uh, the political uh, realities of our country. And it, it's interesting, Margarita, it, and I was uh, looking at some statistics not long ago, and I was impressed by the fact that half the world speaks two or more languages and then reflecting back on the u.s which has the highest educational rate worldwide as a nation it just seemed incongruous uh and i must add one more item only because i'm now in san juan puerto rico and that is that puerto rico is part of the united states and in puerto rico the language of government of communication, of media, of everyday life is Spanish. And so as much as we say we are bilingual, it's predominantly Spanish and we are US citizens. So we have more than 3 million Americans who speak principally Spanish in a US territory, Commonwealth called Puerto Rico. So when they migrate to and from the United States, 
they have every right to continue the dual language experience that they come from. Uh, and so I needed to add that, and that's not a political statement. That is the reality of America 2021 right now. Yeah, and just to um, piggyback on that and what Dr. Pinko said, um, in the U.S., there is no official language, although we know English is the language that, you know, is used mostly by everyone, but it is not an official language. So I say we continue to uh, talk about bilingual education I'm biased for dual language immersion programs. I love them, I've worked in them, and um, I've seen the progress of the critical thinking in students and just uh, how it elevates you know, their, their understanding of content. But I wanna continue to ask questions, if it's okay, Dr. Yeah, Pinkos, one more. Uh, let me just clarify something that has to do with what you just said. Yes, the English is not the, we don't have a national language, but there's many states that have stated that the English is the official language of the state and so on. And sometimes educators use that as, a, as, as an area of fear or the, or the decision making or we cannot have into a language program. And that's not what that means. What, what if the state chooses English as an official language, it doesn't affect, you can still have a dual language program uh, because English is taught in every, and, and and the proficiency, I mean, I, I, I was once told, and I think it's very true, that if our job was to prevent them from learning English, we would not, we would fail. English is just so, um, so, so in, in, in embedded into everything that we do. So we aim for mastery in both languages, particularly in English, uh, and, and in the other language too. So, so it has never been the, the, the promise or the objective that students would not learn English. On the contrary, in dual language programs, they understand how the language works better than when there is no other language involved. They, they, they're able to see their language in a compare and contrast way when you look at other languages. So actually, those kids are more proficient than English only. So, so those laws, because I think sometimes educators get confused with that. That's a great clarification because it prevents people from moving forward in starting our uh, bilingual programs in their schools or starting charter schools, et cetera. So that's a great clarification. Um, what, how do we know that bilingual education works? Like let's choose like the dual language model, for example, a dual language immersion program. What should we know about its efficacy? I know there's a lot, but can you hone in on some of the uh, components? Uh, well, before I do that, I, I usually say, particularly for non-educators, but even for educators too, and I say, if you are the, the owner of a big international company, that, that your money depends on, on how you sell your product. So you decide to open an office, let's say in France, and your head finance person, doesn't speak French, but you need that person to be there in the in the country managing your business, managing the finances, managing the labor laws, managing all of that. Now, of course, they have to learn the labor laws of the country. They have to learn. There, there's a lot of learning that would go on if you want to make, if you want to have a good business, right? So I always say to even business people, and I say, so if that is happening, what language would you train your 
people, the people that you're paying a ton of money to be there, what language would you teach them in? And they always say, well, in English, you can't teach them in French. I mean, obviously they have to learn French and they have to practice French, but if nobody's going to spend, not, no businessman's going to spend money in teaching their staff something that they don't understand what is being taught. So if this makes so much sense to the common person, why would it make sense as educators? So, um, so when kids come to us, I mean, I, I always say that the lower grades are critical, particularly if you have a two-way immersion. Um, we talk about what usually we refer to as a 50-50 model, 50% 50 of the time in English, 50% of the time in, in, in whatever language you're targeting. Um, but that's not true. There's no 50-50. That's 50% 50 of the time in school. That's not even taken into consideration unless you do it on purpose. Uh, all of the classes of, of you know music and all of that, the cafeteria and all of that. So unless you're living in Miami, which is one of the few places in which you're not exposed to, to another language within once you leave the school site. So there is no time to explore languages. So when we say 50-50, it's not really 50-50. So that's why educators need to take as much opportunity in the lower grades to make sure that the English, the monolingual English speakers, get bombarded with language so that they are able to grasp those concepts. So basically what happens in a dual language program is when you're um, in the English side, which we're very familiar with that, because that's what how education is in, in most uh, places, you teach in a very um, in a very pedagogically sound way, We should have to make comprehensive instruction when you're teaching in English, to a mixed group of students that are that are proficient in English and proficient in another language. You teach in English. When you go to the, the half of the day and you decide as teachers what subjects you're going to teach in one language or the other, um, then the, the students, the, the teachers switch, and then the same group of students goes to another classroom and they learn it in the in the target language. And most programs is in Spanish, but it, it, they have it. We have it in many many languages. So at that time, the, the, the structure of power changes, and the student that was that, that was that did not understand very well and was struggling with language suddenly becomes the helper to, to help the other student. So it changes the power. It also changes the ability to use different words to explain different things. Um, so I I I I like that the, the purity of a language like that. Um, to do it at the 50-50 for very practical reasons. It's very cheap to do it. If, you, if you're doing it like that, you only need two teachers for X number of students. But the one thing that I insist on, and I and many other people don't, understand, don't believe that, but I do, um, language arts has to be taught in both languages. I believe that there are some nuances of languages, that the, the, the beauty of the literature of the language, and the beauty of, of understanding the whys of, of, of how language is uh, developed and spoken, I have to be taught. Uh, and there is a different way to teach uh, English than, than to teach uh, early literacy in English, and it's very different to teach it in Arabic or in Spanish or, or, or in French. So I, I whenever I've, I've uh, made a recommendation, I would say you have to teach uh, both, in both sides, you have to teach the, the, the um, language arts. Now, the other subjects, I really don't care because if it is a good teacher and really understands well 
how to teach it and how to make it comprehensible, the students are going to learn. And I, and I have a good example. There was a school in this district in Palmish County that decided to teach, uh, and I always let the teachers make a decision. You might have in your team a, a teacher that is a very good science teacher and happens to be Spanish. Mm -hmm. You definitely say, we're going to teach science in Spanish or, or whatever other languages you teach. So you take advantage of the strength of the teacher. So that's why I always feel that people should have the flexibility of choosing. Um, so, of course, that creates problems with instructional materials and all of that. that, that I'm not going to discount that. Um, so, in this school, they were teaching uh, science in Spanish exclusively. And that was the first year that we had the, the Florida assessment of science in every school. Uh, obviously, that principal was uh, a little scared, but she stuck to her to her decision. Uh, monolingual English speaker, um, a principal. When the sports came, uh, those students, the English, the monolingual English speaking kids, score uh, above the district average, and they had never been taught in English, and the test was in English, and they over, uh, they overscored by twenty points, and that was a significant uh, point. And the English learners that were in that class. Um, surpass all of the other English learners in the scientists. So, um, so I mean, I have graphs, and, and I always share it with people because people always, the, the big thing that you always get is, well, the test is in English. Well, it doesn't matter. The test tests a comprehensive way of thinking, and you mentioned critical thinking, of, of all of that. So if you're able to at least decode and understand and be able to read in, in English, you're going to be able to pour all that language, doesn't matter how. And, and I think that in and the other way is um, there's the academic English is based on a lot of cognates that are based on, uh, on, on romance languages. So for a student that, I mean, I, I used to have a teacher that came to me advocating for bilingual education, and she says, but wouldn't it be great if we were able to say to the kids, I, I don't know, like a word like atmosphere, how do you say atmosphere in Spanish? And I said, atmosfera. So then she says, well, I'm sorry, that's not a good one. Let's just say perpendicular. And I said perpendicular. So, I mean, so each word <laughs> is kind of based on, on, uh, on, 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 on a cognate. And, and that's not yeah. well, So I think that's, that's why bilingual children score so high in SAT, because the SAT focuses on uh, very academic words that uh, speak in another language. Even if you don't know what the word means, you kind of get a feeling for the word if you speak another language. So that's... You, you've mentioned a lot of things, and, and thank you so much, because those cognates just took me back to my fifth grade class with my charts of cognates and science all over the wall. You know, um, transfer of information is key, right? So if you learn it in one language, it's going to transfer to the other language, so you don't have to teach it twice. Exactly. It's, it's something that happens automatically also. Um, yeah. Abdin, close it up for us. Some of the, uh, the cognates in that uh, a good portion of English is based on the Romantic languages, and Spanish uh, comes in uh, loud and clear in, in that respect. And uh, years ago, a friend of mine put together a number of cognate words, like words ending in A-T-I-O-N, Asian becoming nación, uh, where they are spelled almost identically all the time. And just that one rule of thumb uh, covers 750 words. One rule of thumb. So if you put 
I'm telling you, there are about 47 rules of thumb like that. You put them all together, you can transliterate almost 3,000 words from language one to language two when it comes to Spanish, English, English, Spanish. That's fascinating. Uh, yes. So that transfer skill is major for a lot of us. Right, but also there is a cognitive um, load there that is acquired when you're able to transfer across languages that you don't even realize that you're doing it. Because That's right. That, that is, is a cognitive ability that, that highlights that. that in the, and I have, there have been all kinds of, of, uh, of research done on the brain and, and even that it delays um, dementia and things like that. And, it, and I think it is because it reaches different parts of the brain. It keeps the brain lit, for lack of a better word. Now, the other part that I think it's important to recognize in the lower levels is English is a hard language. It's a hard language to learn how to read and how to control. It's just, I mean, I used to say to my kids, hey guys, read and read are spelled the same way. So don't don't try to figure it out, you know? So um, so English is, and there's a lot of, of, of reading um, difficulties in, in young children in English. We don't have, in, other, in, the, in some of the romance languages, I don't know enough about um, Asian languages or, or Arabic language, Arabic-based languages, but I know that the, the romantic languages uh, are very reliable. One syllable means the same thing always. One word means that so many children that have uh, learning disabilities are able to, they don't know what they're reading yet because they haven't been taught, but in the lower grades, they're able, I, I saw that over and over again. They were able to learn how to code in Spanish, even though they were native English speakers. They were able to learn how to decode in Spanish before they learned how to decode in English. And that knowledge helped them make sense a little bit of, the, of, of, of making sense of the words in English. Um, and there was a, there was a study done um, a while ago that showed the incidence of learning disabilities in Italy and in France and in Spain were much were minimal compared to the learning disabilities of this. And I think part of that is the difficulty of the language itself, that it doesn't have a lot of reliability between sounds and a lot of the, the so there's some issues uh, with the language itself. I mean, that adds to the beauty of the language, but it adds to the difficulty of learning it, even for the native speaker. It, it, it's interesting that English is a very difficult language because it's inconsistent, and it's inconsistent because it's a mongrel language. So half of it is based on Romance languages and half of it is based on Anglo-Saxon, but when you put them all together, it's a mess. And if students do not understand that, they have difficulty. Once you partial it out, uh, it becomes a lot easier and literacy difficulties are minimized for students who know that and can decode. And so having the access of another language actually facilitates English learning. And that's fascinating. The bottom line is that we all need to belong, right? And build positive relationships in our journey schooling from, you know, pre-K all the way through. Educa K-16 podcast is a call to action to raise awareness about education in our nation. Today, you heard from Dr. Pinkos on bilingual education in our nation as we bring to life the books 
written by my co-host, Dr. Abdinoa Rios, Latinos in Education in American History and the Critical Issues We Face in the 21st Century. Dr. Novoa has written all of these books, and we are distilling this information in our podcast, bringing to life interviews to then create this momentum of a renaissance in our education system. Please go and listen to the podcast you've missed on Spotify or Anchor, or visit our Educa K-16 YouTube channel to put faces to names. Stay tuned next week as we continue the conversation on education. Thank you. Dr. Margarita Pincos, Dr. Adignovo Rios, thank you for being here with us. Some last words, tie it all in, Dr. Novoa. Uh, not easily, but we have hit a lot of topics within one topic. And I think there's been a lot of learning, a lot of sharing throughout in terms of the competency of language, the meaning of language, and the importance of language. Looked at from multiple perspectives and what intrigued me what in terms of what uh, dr bingo said among many other things as she said is the bicognitive aspect that we're now getting some interesting research as of the past 20 years in terms of what some people have called the bilingual brain and the bilingual brain works differently and more effectively than the monolingual brain and we have yet to hear more about that research in the future, but it's a whole area that we did not know about years ago. And again, it feeds into the competency of the importance of thinking beyond monolingualism. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Pinkos, one last push for understanding. I, I'd say the only that I would add is, um, is purpose. It's, uh, it's, it's very hard to get kids excited about learning languages. We don't have, we have not created a narrative of why. And you know, nobody grows up um, thinking that they want to be a French speaker or a Spanish speaker. Nobody says that. You ask your child what do you want to be when you grow up, they never say that. They want to say an engineer, a doctor, a teacher. So let's just begin to think about doing career education within a bilingual format so that as they become strong in understanding those different areas that they're interested in, they're able to at the same time learn the language because it will be through content, which is the best way to learn language anyway. So, so, uh, so that's those are my last comments. Thank you so much. Stay tuned next week, listeners, as we continue the conversation on education. This has been good. Thank you, Margarita. Pleasure. Thank you.